Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health features industry guests and panelists who explore topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath, healthcare industry advisor for Vynamic. When thinking about HIV, many may recall the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s or the tangential relationship with the LGBTQ community. Today, we're taking a closer look at the current state of advocacy efforts and stigma in caring for persons impacted by HIV. Tremendous progress has been made in the science of HIV treatment through the development of better antiretroviral therapies, which have significantly reduced AIDS-related deaths and improved long-term health outcomes for people living with HIV. There has been significant push for PrEP, a preventative measure for individuals who are part of high-risk populations. However, large challenges loom when aiming to eliminate HIV. First, up to 15% of those with HIV in America are unaware of their status. And second, disparate, confusing access to healthcare resources make treatment and prevention challenging for many. And perhaps an even greater issue is the stigma that many associate with HIV. We are taking a deeper look at this topic with friend of Dynamic, Greg Langen, Program Manager of South Jersey AIDS Education and Training Center, housed within the Jefferson Health New Jersey Foundation. Greg holds a master's degree in social work and public health from Temple University. In addition, he's an adjunct professor of health communication with the College of New Jersey. Greg? Thank you so much for joining us today. It's nice to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So can we start off? I'd love to hear a little bit about um, some of the advocacy and educational work that you're doing in this space. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I work for the Jefferson Health Foundation, but my position is actually federally funded uh, through the AIDS Education and Training Centers. um, And we are essentially funded... Uh, to serve persons uh, either with HIV or people in communities who are at risk of acquiring HIV. Um, And in the past couple of years since I started with them, uh, we've really made a concerted effort to kind of focus on uh, providing education regarding stigma reduction, especially around uh, sexual health behaviors and substance use, um, as well as training on using appropriate language and care uh, and proper kind of engagement techniques. Uh, And we've done this to a host of different groups of of people, including, you know, neurologist offices, nursing homes, correctional systems. Um, We've worked with county housing services uh, just to provide kind of this overview of how to engage with communities that people might uh, not be used to uh, interfacing with. And then some other things that we're doing, uh, specifically in New Jersey, we're working to kind of integrate behavioral health uh, into HIV primary care. Uh, in a way to kind of destigmatize HIV, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, and then also mental health and substance use. Uh, and then we, as a, a piece in New Jersey as well, uh, my colleague Adam Thompson <clears throat> has worked kind of with the State Department of Health to fund positions called community health workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are individuals in uh, state-funded clinics who they share some form of a lived experience with their clients and they really work as an emotional support to help clients kind of navigate this process, uh, especially around, you know, being diagnosed with HIV, becoming engaged in care in a clinic uh, and then becoming retained in care, right? Because uh, the person 
they may come to their first visit, but the goal is to have them keep coming back and engaging in, in that care. And that program, uh, interestingly enough, earlier this year in January was uh, replicated in Wisconsin. So we're seeing that kind of expand as well. Um, so that's the kind of work that, that we've been doing. That's, that's really amazing that all of these efforts are taking place in the community. Um, I'm wondering from, from just progress that's been made over the course of the last 20 years, what have you seen? Yeah, uh, so we've seen some really great advancements. Um, we've seen kind of in the past decade, advancements in therapy have really led to these biomedical interventions like pre-exposure prophylaxis, or a lot of people have heard of PrEP, uh, which is what that stands for, uh, and treatment as prevention. Um, we've seen improved access to therapies, uh, which is kind of due to an increase in access points so where people can get their care. Um, as well as increases in the number of, of people who are able to get insurance. Um, we've seen this kind of shift uh, specifically around, uh, historically, people were treated in specialty practices, uh, mainly kind of infectious disease practices. And we've seen this switch, uh, if, if people are okay with it, to be treated by primary care providers, uh, which is a lot cheaper. And then, you know, insurance expansion in the, in the past 10 years or so has been huge, right? We've seen uh, marriage equality uh, has allowed for insurance coverage for spouses in communities that didn't have that right previously. Um, and then a, a huge impact on the community was the Affordable Care Act, which uh, specifically allowed uh, for folks to not be excluded from insurance due to pre-existing conditions, but then also for states that expanded Medicaid has just really opened up the doors for a number of people who didn't have insurance previously. Uh, and then I think, you know, kind of in light of in recent current events, we we've started to have kind of this larger discussion around uh, oppression and responses to trauma, which I think is really important. Um, we we see a lot in in communities of color as well as uh, you know sexual uh, sexual minorities and uh, gender minorities that <clears throat> there are these higher rates of mental health disorders and there's this kind of line that we're trying to figure out uh, whether we're seeing true mental illness as you know in terms of depression and anxiety versus whether or not we're we're really just seeing real responses to kind of centuries of trauma and oppression uh, that have have been kind of rampant in our country. The advocacy and outreach efforts have really just expanded segment, segmented areas of the community where, you know, mental health starts to weave in through, through all of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been um, really kind of uh, amazing to see the kind of strides and the, the conversations that are really opening up that people are having uh, that may have been happening kind of behind closed doors previously, but are really starting to occur out in the open. It's, it's been great. And um, I'm curious, because one of the, the things that was on my mind was just when you think about like this kind of acute care um, or acute health crisis that we're living in right now with the coronavirus, like, has it had, do you think, like a greater impact or, or has it been stifling when it comes to patient advocacy efforts and, and access to care? Like, what are you seeing kind of play itself out right now? That's a great question. We've it's, it's kind of forced a shift in what we've been doing. Um, mm. the, the emergence, I mean, specifically around COVID-19, when we look at that, it really showed this kind of huge gap in our healthcare system. Um, we saw, you know, a lot of providers weren't in a position to provide telemedicine or telehealth services. Um, and that was really kind of 
due to IT needs, but also kind of training needs? How do you provide these visits to folks when they're not sitting physically in front of you? Uh, instead, they're kind of behind a, a screen. Um, but not only for providers, but we found that clients were also not in a position uh, to, to kind of engage in these services. Um, we saw that, you know, a lot of clients didn't have a space that was private to have this visit to discuss these kind of uh, these things that they would want to keep private. Um, and there were kind of a lot of questions that, that we didn't have answers to around, you know, whether HIV medication or HIV itself made folks more susceptible to COVID-19. So there's really been this kind of push to get that information. Um, and it's, there's also been this shift around how do we, how do we engage our clients when they're feeling this, this fear and anxiety, but, you know, the folks that they're interfacing with are feeling those same things. Um, you know, there's been a lot of loss, a lot of kind of great pioneers. Uh, in New Jersey, we lost a longtime advocate, uh, Dolores Dockery, uh, who'd been working in HIV advocacy since the early 1990s. And she was really seen by clients and community members as uh, this really kind of great figure in, in New Jersey. But she was also seen, you know, really held up uh, by by the employees in that state as well um, and across the country. So it's been kind of this weird uh, advocacy shift where it's how do we navigate these waters when we're feeling the same emotions as our clients? Um, and it's still something that we're navigating. These are still kind of conversations that we're having. Um, and it's it'll be interesting to see kind of how that plays out in, in the coming months. Can we talk a little bit about bias and stigma and how that plays out in patient access to care and health outcomes? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, to start, right, there's this really kind of historical trauma um, that's related to healthcare exclusion and discrimination for both, uh, you know, racial minorities and folks who identify as LGBTQ+. Um, and then there's this idea of kind of layered stigma and bias. When you add in um, the kind of history of non-consensual experimentation, uh, which even in the 1900s was a problem for racial and ethnic minorities in the United States. Um, we see that while not all stigmas are the same, when they become layered, they get, they get worse. Um, so when you add in things like HIV stigmat uh, stigmatization, we see that there are, you know, kind of like vastly different consequences in the way that uh, individuals experience their care. So, for example, um, if someone is anticipating that, you know, a medical provider is going to treat them differently because of their HIV diagnosis, they may not go to their visit. Um, but then there's, and that's kind of an anticipated stigma, but then there's this idea of experience stigma where an individual goes and they feel like they were stigmatized. So they've had that initial visit, but they may not go back. Um, and they may kind of paint the entire healthcare system in that light. So they may not even look for care in another location. Um, and then finally, I think there's this idea uh, about kind of what our healthcare looks like. And it's uh, that our healthcare is the same as everyone else's, right? It's the same as women who don't identify as LGBTQ or who don't have HIV and the same for men um, and for, you know, non-binary folks that our healthcare concerns are really only exacerbated by things like HIV. Uh, we're still kind of, you know, concerned about health issues like cancer and diabetes and hypertension. Um, and we don't want those discussions to kind of be reduced uh, by having a primary focus just kind of taking place on our sexual health. 
Um, because while that is one piece of our health that's very important, we are also still kind of plagued by these these long-term chronic illnesses that everybody else is as well. Right, right. So how do you balance that, I guess? It's tough. What's the so opportunity, I guess, to to help providers understand how to balance that conversation? Yeah, I think for for providers, it's really seeing it's understanding that that people aren't just the labels that we've identified them as. So it's, you know, if, if a, a gay man comes into your office, that the focus of those conversations shouldn't just be about their, you know, sexual health history. It needs to be looking at them as a person, as a whole individual, um, looking at family history as far as, you know, mental health, as well as chronic illness. You know, are you at a higher risk for depression, which, you know, can exacerbate physical health issues? Um, so I think the primary focus is is making sure that you're looking at the entire individual and not just focusing in on that one piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, earlier in the conversation, you did mention PrEP, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, or a little bit more about treatment as prevention and just some of your thoughts on on the advancements in that area. Yeah, treatment as prevention was huge. So we we see it marketed as U equals U, which I think a lot of listeners, that is kind of the piece that's going to go off. Uh, you know, they, they've heard that before. And uh, U equals U uh, means undetectable equals untransmissible. Uh, and that's another way of phrasing treatment as prevention. So uh, in, in July, I believe it was July of 2016, the CDC released a consensus letter that basically stated that folks who have HIV, who are living with HIV and are taking antiretroviral medication. So um, you'll hear that referred to as ART. Uh, and that's just kind of the medication to suppress the virus in the body. When, when folks are taking that medication regularly and they've achieved an undetectable viral load, which means that uh, their HIV is unable to be detected in a traditional test, um, that individual is unable to transmit the virus sexually. Um, not that there's, you know, a lower risk, but they are actually not able to transmit the virus. Um, and they, the interesting piece about that is they also acknowledge stigma in that letter, right? They said uh, that many persons with HIV, they may, may not be in a position to reach that undetectable viral load at the time uh, due to numerous factors. It could be kind of treatment access, um, whether that be due to inadequate health systems in their area, poverty, uh, stigma, discrimination, they've, they really kind of honed in on that piece. But this letter kind of coming out was huge, right? I mean, the burden that was kind of lifted from the shoulders of persons with HIV was incredible, uh, especially for long-term survivors. This idea of TASP or treatment as prevention or U equals U uh, had really kind of long been discussed in community, uh, but there wasn't really this scientific backing of the idea. Uh, so for that kind of official confirmation to come out a couple of years ago was was huge for folks uh, and was a, a really kind of uplifting moment in, in the advocacy community and the community of, you know, persons with HIV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm really struck about by the, the, the amount of advocacy um, activity and just the advancement in that area. I'm wondering from your perspective, what opportunities, it still feels like there's still a huge amount of opportunities out there, right? But specifically, when you think about the road ahead, what opportunities do you see to improve patient experience and, and outcomes really in the space? Yeah, there, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think the, the biggest opportunities we have are that 
we we have a lot of information that's just not collected. Uh, so we need to ensure that data that data is collected to examine our care in comparison of others. Um, we don't really often ask for sexual orientation or specifically gender identity. Um, those are typically, if they're asked, they're kind of closed-ended questions. Um, and we don't ask them in kind of culturally appropriate ways. And, you know, if they're asked, they're often not asked for the right reasons or, you know, we're collecting that data and we're not really using it for the person's care. And it kind of just defeats the purpose. So making sure that we're asking those questions, that we're asking them appropriately, and that we're using those answers to inform the care of our clients is really important. Um, and then there's some real kind of actionable steps that I think providers and, you know, medical systems as a whole can kind of take. Uh, and that would be really kind of embracing this idea that medicine is a practice, right? We call it the practice of medicine and that uh, it, it really needs to be this kind of lifelong learning. And that, you know, these treatment and prevention techniques are constantly evolving. We see, you know, too many providers even still who are unaware of or aren't comfortable with the idea of, uh, of, of using PrEP for clients who don't have HIV, but who may be at risk. Um, we still see a lot of folks who are seen by infectious disease specialists, which typically comes with this kind of larger out-of-pocket cost to a client as opposed to seeing a primary care provider. Um, we also see that community isn't really steering efforts. So if providers could really kind of <clears throat> engage with the communities they're working with and have them really kind of drive advocacy efforts, it would be great. Uh, one of the tools that we see used a lot in, in New Jersey is this idea of a patient journey map. And it's this idea that we, we bring consumers of our medical services in uh, and they work through essentially what a visit looks like to them. So uh, it shows really kind of the touch points in care from, you know, the reminder call that they have a visit in two days to the parking garage attendant who is, you know, kind of welcoming them into the parking garage to checking in and out of the visit to any follow-up calls. And not only does it show each aspect of that, but how they felt during that time uh, so that we can really kind of make adjustments if needed and improve as necessary. Um, we can also kind of look at stigma within your network. Uh, there's this real kind of stigma expert. Her name is Laura Nyblade, uh, and she's worked in stigma and discrimination in public health for many years. And she developed this really great tool to measure stigma in your healthcare organization. Um, and it really kind of focused on this idea that you know, when you ask someone kind of outright, if they're discriminating against their patients or clients, how are they going to answer, right? They're going to typically answer, no, I wouldn't do that. I would never do that. Uh, so this tool kind of flips the script a little bit. And it also asks employees in the, the healthcare setting, if they've seen their coworkers act in stigmatizing or discriminating ways. And there you kind of see this answer that's a little bit different than what we've seen traditionally. And that tool then can be used to really kind of improve the care you're providing in that setting. And then I think finally, this idea about being open to cultural humility trainings. Uh, we have this idea that's long been discussed about cultural competence. And if you think about that term, it's really kind of strange in that we can't really become competent in a culture. Um, culture not only is constantly changing and evolving, but folks interact with their own cultures in different ways. So it's, it's almost kind of naive to believe that, you know, a one hour or one day or a one week training can make you competent in something, uh, something like this. And one of the interesting kind of tools I've seen used is uh, my colleague Dottie Dowdell. She completes this exercise uh, called Examine Your Lens. 
And it was developed in uh, 2011, I think, by Tracy Williams. But this activity, she has people write down the cultural aspects of themselves from kind of familial orientation as, you know, a parent, a spouse, child, um, to their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, or whatever is kind of important to that individual, uh, whether it be, you know, religious affiliation. And then she kind of invites those folks to see how those identities inform the lenses that they're taking information in from. And it really kind of provokes this dialogue about how these aspects of your identity and culture can kind of change the way you see others and how they see you as well. So it's this idea about always kind of being open to how you're perceiving things and how maybe you can kind of not change the way that you see things, but become aware of it so that you Mm -hmm. can kind of consciously in the moment kind of dive deeper. Yeah, that's really incredible. Greg, talking about stigma a little bit more, uh, what's one or two things that you think the healthcare industry could do maybe more consistently um, so that addressing the topic of stigma becomes more commonplace um, for individuals that are living with HIV or at risk? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. So we see uh, we see a lot that hospitals and health organizations aren't implementing CDC guidelines appropriately. And I think kind of the first thing that we can do is have these organizations really take a look at what CDC guidelines are for screening uh, and, and adhere to those. So uh, who you're screening, when you're screening them should really follow those guidelines. We see a lot of organizations only, only screen for HIV um, in a stigmatizing way, in a sense, uh, where they're only screening people who uh, identify as, you know, a, a gay man or, you know, a, a gay man of color, um, when that's not the only group of people who are at risk. Uh, so really kind of adhering to those guidelines that the CDC has set forth and, and screening everyone who falls into those those guidelines is important. And then I think the second piece overall is for providers to really support folks with HIV, uh, ensuring access to getting those antiretroviral therapies that I mentioned earlier, uh, really in a non-stigmatizing way. So not forcing people to start treatment when they're, they're first diagnosed, because that's, that's a huge deal to be diagnosed with HIV for, for people, especially in you know, an environment that is still heavily stigmatized. Um, so not forcing them to start treatment, but essentially working with them to, uh, to get them ready to begin those therapies is really important to kind of uh, understand that medical care isn't the only thing that persons with HIV are getting from you, right? Many of these, these, you know, people with HIV, they haven't told folks in their personal lives about their diagnosis and they don't have to, we can't, we can't force and we shouldn't force people to do that. But it's important to be cognizant that sometimes your clinic is the only, you know, group of people that know this person is going through this experience. Um, and sometimes those folks need to unburden and we, we really need to kind of be there and understand that that's a part of this process. And, you know, if a person decides to tell someone in their personal life about their diagnosis, that that's, that's their choice. But until they do that, you know, we really need to kind of uh, help them through this process. Mm-hmm. You did mention access. I want to ask you just a little bit more about um, navigating things like insurance benefits and the coordination of care. Um, has it improved? Where are the opportunities to make it tighter um, to ensure that when somebody has HIV or, or maybe is at risk for it, that they have the right types of resources and support from their, their payer community? 
Yeah, so insurance, right? <laughs> uh, probably the one of the most difficult processes to navigate. So uh, I think the biggest thing we can do on a large scale effort is ensure access to insurance for people. So for states that haven't expanded Medicaid coverage under the Affordable Care Act to expand that, uh, to allow you know, more folks to be, to be insured under that process. Um, the, other, the other kind of avenue that we can look through is uh, for folks who are living with HIV that we really engage them in what we call the Ryan White Act. So that is a piece of federal legislation that really assists with paying for medications, but not only paying for medications, but helping with uh, food security, housing security. It provides you know, case management services to help people through this exact process through uh, applying for insurance or applying for Medicaid, um, you know, kind of making folks aware that that kind of legislation exists and these, these folks are really there to, to help them. Um, and making sure that your kind of your clinic or your healthcare setting is well equipped, equipped to, uh, to handle that those patients, um, as far as navigating them through that, that service, right, you don't, you want to make sure your your employees are being educated enough to know how to navigate those insurance purposes. Um, it's difficult, even, you know, as someone who works in the healthcare field, I often still have questions. So uh, it's important to kind of Make sure that your your clients know who to ask those questions to, uh, and if you don't know the answer, to to not just pretend that you do. To make sure that you're really getting them accurate information is so important. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Um, really appreciate it. I, I'm really encouraged just hearing some of the the progress that has been made to date, um, and equally as encouraged encouraged that there are people like you out on the the front lines, right? Like really trying to continue to advance um, services and, and systems in the healthcare world to make sure that people living with HIV or diagnosed with HIV have the support that they need. Thank, thank you so much for having me and for, you know, allowing us to kind of have this discussion. It's, uh, I agree, it is really, really great to see kind of the, the progress that's been made and uh, being able to be here and have this conversation with you just kind of uh, furthers our mission, which is exciting. So thank you very much. <laughs> That was such an enlightening conversation with Greg. And to recap what we heard from him and discuss the topic further, I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Hummel, Provider Sector Advisor. Hello, everybody. And our dynamic colleagues, Matthew Howard. Hello, hello. And Stephanie Christmas. Hi, great to be here. One thing that really resonated with me is when Greg said that medical care isn't the only thing that persons with HIV are receiving from providers. What opportunities do you see for providers to better understand and serve this community? I thought that Greg's uh, retelling of kind of all of the folks and stakeholders that he touches across the health healthcare paradigm was so fascinating to me, and that's beyond medical care. The one thing that really you know speaks to that exact question, uh, to me anyway, is the transition from infectious disease doctors to primary care and how that has evolved over the years for HIV treatment. And if you recall, or if kind of you think about your own primary care physician or your own family doctor, the conversations you have with those physicians and providers is, is different than a specialist. And it's kind of a whole health, whole person mentality. And just that transition of how we're treating and appreciating folks 
around HIV was just resonating to me. And just in my personal experience with seeing my family doctor, those conversations are different than with specialists or other folks. So just, I just found that really interesting. And that eliminates stigma and trauma, a lot of the stuff that Greg talked about, um, and educating folks outside of the healthcare kind of realm also adds to that. I think the, the piece that really stuck out to me around that was when Greg was talking about the rapid transition to telehealth and that there are some of these folks who are trying to have these conversations but might not even have a safe place to have these conversations in private. Um, and he highlighted that sometimes providers are the only people in someone's life who might know of their HIV status. So beyond just the medical care, it's the space that providers provide for, for folks dealing with these different issues that is really special and important that they maintain that and figure out strategies to maintain that, which I think we'll get to a little bit more throughout our conversation of how you can create these inclusive and safe spaces. I just also want to mention, you know, Greg talked a little bit about community health workers. And back when we started this podcast several years ago, we, we had a conversation about those important stakeholders in the healthcare uh, world. And the fact that Greg brought that up and talked about their importance um, it w- was really key. And that goes beyond medical care. It's really about um, a conversation and having dialogues. And community health workers, I think, will have a continued and increased role in this world. So one of the things, um, I believe it was Matt, you just mentioned, talking about stigma and bias in healthcare and, and some of the damaging effects on community health, both from preventing patients from seeking care to patients receiving incomplete or inappropriate care, and even patients not being able to access care. Um, From your perspective, what steps do you think are most critical for healthcare organizations to take to eliminate this? Yeah, I think that there are really two main components that come to mind when I'm thinking about what these organizations can do. One is education. Um, You know, I've had the experience as a gay man educating my doctors on the care that I need uh, around this topic. And that's a unique position to be in that I had to be fully educated and it really reduced my confidence in my provider that I was the one leading that conversation. And that called into questions more things about the care I was receiving. And ultimately I decided to change providers because if I'm the one leading the conversation with my doctor, it felt a little bit um, backwards. So there's a big education piece. And then I think the other piece is around how we view diversity and inclusion work in the workplace. Not only is this impactful for the care that is being given to um, patients, but it's also impactful for how employees navigate and understand their role. And I think that the experienced stigma that Greg spoke about um, is really impactful on outcome. I think one thing that Matt brings up that's really important around the education piece is Thinking through, this is not a one-time training, and this is exactly what Greg was speaking to as well, and this is not a one-time uh, educational opportunity to think about how you how you 
work in this space. It's a continuous learning. And I, when Greg was talking about the idea of it being a practice and the idea of continuing to talk through how stigma shows up and how it impacts the care that you're giving your patient, I think that's really important because when you think of diversity and inclusion, a lot of people think of it as one-off training, uh, a compliance activity, something to check a box. And it's really more about a deep understanding of who you're serving and how you're serving them in the best way possible and how you can be inclusive of them. And that comes into even thinking about the questions you're asking when someone comes in to screen them. Is there a judgment behind it? Is there a tone that goes with it? Do people feel comfortable disclosing uh, health information, not just HIV status, but thinking of mental health status? Um, and is it something that you are thinking about how you're treating the patient in the right way and in a way that's safe for them to disclose that information so that they can get the best care possible? Stephanie, that's such a great point. Uh, and and kind of combining what you just said around including inclusionary language and what Matt was mentioning before, you know, I, it takes me back to this idea of consumerism and this belief that in, in healthcare and in almost every interaction you have with a physician or a provider, that provider is, is teaching you or has more information or knowledge on a subject than you as the patient has. And I think it's, it is an interesting paradigm shift here that in many instances, Matthew, you mentioned you helping to educate your physician. Um, that feeling and that, that shift is really something that we should be addressing. And a lot of this stigma, uh, overcoming the stigma through education of providers is going to help that. But, you know, it's one of those things where we all have talked about consumerism being good in the fact that patients have information. That is about choosing and understanding. It's never been about helping your provider understand your situation from a medical perspective. We still need to rely on our providers to help us. So I just, I find that interesting. Greg's work really addresses that. So HHS recently finalized a rule removing non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people when it comes to healthcare and health insurance. From your perspective, what's the potential impact to patients and what do providers and health plans need to consider if this rule does get finalized? One thing I'd say is we know <clears throat> that policy shapes behavior, right? And policy shapes the behavior of our patient population, but it also shapes the behavior of health plans and providers and how they treat patients. And so, you know, this, this ruling by HHS probably will have impact on the marketing dollars that go into health plan spending, um, the way we look at things. And, you know, in this world of healthcare, things are changing every day. Um, so we, we should probably keep a really close eye on, on this and how it becomes um, applied or not applied in the world of healthcare. Yeah, I think that it further complicates the already very complicated web that is access and insurance when it comes to these topics. So Greg talked a lot about PrEP and the journey to get PrEP covered through health insurance is a complicated one that depends on so many factors. And, you know, this is a preventative medication that is good for the population health. But when you have to jump through so many hoops and you are seeing really big numbers with dollar signs next to them as far as what PrEP is going to mean for you, that can be off-putting to people who aren't adamant about this access. And um, 
I think that if you add any further complications to it, you're going to see a, a decrease in maybe the progress that's already been made or a, a slow down of future progress in this area. You can be as adamant as you can around access and understanding it, but if you don't really get that that web that you talk of, Matt, it, it's almost impossible. You know, the idea of copays not being covered and going through and trying to figure out how you get, you know, could be several hundred or seven thousand, several thousand dollars of a copay for a medication that is to prevent something from happening is daunting. It's daunting to someone who is educated in the healthcare world. Um, I can't imagine it being um, easy for folks that don't understand that. And so, you know, adding more layers uh, to this HHS uh, ruling really complicates things even further. I do want to wrap this up on a more positive note because I think that Greg really did an amazing job of highlighting um, the impact that patient advocacy has had on really improving education, improving access to care, and even improving health outcomes in the HIV community. When you think forward-looking, what opportunities do you see for patient advocacy organizations to create lasting change throughout the healthcare system? I really see an expansion in commitment to diversity and inclusion work for all of these healthcare organizations as the right step forward to close some of these gaps to enable these conversations to continue to happen. Um, I've, you know, back to Ryan's point that he just made about if you're not already educated on some of these topics, it's really challenging to, to navigate. And, you know, I'm a, a healthcare industry management consultant and I understand my healthcare and health insurance fairly well and navigating this has been a challenge. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with a colleague about the hurdles that I was having to overcome for some of these things and for, for prep that I learned something new. And I wouldn't ever have had that conversation if I didn't feel comfortable having that conversation with a colleague at my work. And I never would have went back to my doctor to have that conversation of figuring out how to get around this. I would have given up um, as I had already kind of like made up my mind to do. So I think that the diversity inclusion work in any organization, but especially in healthcare organizations, will have ripple effects that impact and improve community health. I think that in addition to that, you know, we talked a lot about stigma and bias earlier in the podcast. And um, mitigating and eliminating that across the board, across just not, not just including patients, but providers, healthcare workers, community folks, and society in general will help facilitate these patient advocacy groups even more. Because the less stigma you have about something, the more you will feel comfortable talking about something. And the more comfortable you are talking about something, the more educated you become. And the more educated you become, the more you understand the access opportunity to be better. And I think that it is a, um, an amazing journey that Greg has been on and, and multiplying that and creating replicable, replicable ways of, of doing what he's doing across 
the nation and across the world. Because don't forget, HIV is a global problem. It is, it is you know, not even centered in the United States. Uh, we'll, we'll have, to quote Matt, ripple effects. I also think there's a lot of opportunity to not just further the conversation on the access to care and on the care for persons with HIV. I also think there is an opportunity to advocate for any other um, conditions and chronic conditions that fit within that demographic. So again, speaking to that stigma, their diagnosis is not their entire uh, identity. And there are so many other things that could be actually more, um, more important in their health. Um, if you're thinking of high cholesterol, if you're thinking of diabetes, heart disease, those are actually might be more of an issue for them to manage than their HIV status. So I think that um, as the conversation continues to progress and as more um, is done in the way of treating and destigmatizing HIV, I think we can also advocate for overall benefits um, for this pop for this population, and to think about how they can be advocates for themselves, as well as have providers and health plans that are comprehensive and understand and speak to all of their different health concerns. Um, you know, regardless of where they they sit. Steph, that's such a great point. And um, with that, I want to wrap up this episode. I'd like to thank our dynamic panel for joining us on Trending Health. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources that we discussed on this episode or to subscribe to Trending Health, uh, please visit us at trendinghealth.com and tune in to the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.